everyone. Thanks for joining the Pinche Millennial Podcast, Pinche Participation. I'm Amanda Miguel. And I am Nick Ochoa. We're two Latino millennials sharing a fresh, relevant perspective on civics and political participation in the U.S. today. And today we're going to be covering our origin stories. This is how we have come into politics, civic participation, and this podcast, we are sharing this information about being politically aware and involved. So we thought we'd share how we came into it ourselves. This idea came up, the idea for this topic came up during one of our previous episodes. We were recording an Instagram live a while ago and one of our, someone who tuned in, a listener brought it up and Amanda and I were like, this is great. Some of us... Some of our listeners know either just me or just Amanda, but not the other one. So sharing our backstories is a way, and some people may not know us personally at all. So sharing our backstories is a good way for to give context to you all about who we are, what we bring to the table, how our perspectives are informed by how we were raised, where we grew up, etc. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like you know, Nick and I are just are so different ourselves and you will see that in our stories as we share them. <laughs> um, but our origin stories is something uh, that I believe is a way for us to truly get to know one another, not just in your friend group, but with with others. You know, I see a lot of the decision makers, policymakers at the federal level, right, um, who are representing such diverse rep- um, perspectives uh, across our country. And I think every one of those stories is really valuable, really important and necessary to the conversation. Um, and that includes us. And so we are going to model that um, with today's episode. Uh, so, yeah, let's I mean, this is <laughs> Nick and I have like some like outlining notes, right, because. I mean, it's a, it's a lot to <laughs> want to get it all down to bite-sized pieces. But I think, um, yeah, the general outcome is that we hope you all can feel inspired or uh, feel connected in, to some pieces of our stories. And that hopefully, you know, it, it can give you a little bit more context of why we do this podcast. Um, and with that, yeah, let's, you want to go ahead and get started, Nick? Yeah. So in the thinking about what we're going to discuss, I was turning over some ideas in my, in my brain. And I, I thought, I think a good place to start is explaining who we are, where we came, where we come from, the worlds that formed us individually. Mm-hmm. Um, and for those of you who have been listening to our podcast, you've heard me mention about 38 million times that I'm from El Paso, Texas. <laughs> and I'm super proud of it. Um, and that for those of you who are not familiar with El Paso, Texas, it's right on the border. Um, it's the western, uh, right on the border of Mexico. It is the westernmost tip of Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's even in a different time zone than the rest of Texas. It's mountain time zone. And I come from a large, extended Mexican American family. My grandparents, all my grandparents, came to the U.S. in their twenties, I think, um, when they were young, young adults, and just built their families just on the other side of on the, on the U.S. side of the border. Um, I have like 20 something cousins on each side of my family. I grew mm-hmm. up with 10 or 12 cousins at a time around my age group fighting and playing and Super fun. you know one cousin was a cheerleader and one was a football player and so and I was a nerd and mm-hmm. like there was always multi-generational family around in my life. Um, I grew up in a household with three boys, 
for the first part years of my life um, and was for the first few years of my life raised by a single mom who was hustling her way through community college to get a degree in her 20s and working multiple jobs. Um, I remember she actually had a newspaper route mm. when I was very little. And all my life, my mom was this tiny, very, very thin woman. And I remember her like we'd go, I don't remember where it was, we'd go pick up these newspapers for her newspaper route. And she would put on a vest. Maybe you've seen these, I don't know what they're called, the vest with pockets in the front mm -hmm. and the back. And she would fill mm -hmm. the newspapers here and then in the pouch in the back and she'd toss the newspapers. I don't know if she used a bike or just like out of the van, her car. And then she would turn when, you know, when she'd emptied, thrown all these newspapers out, she'd turn her vest around to get the next newspapers, mm -hmm. keep going. Um, she worked a bunch of jobs. She sold cakes um, and she eventually got her degree when she was like late twenties, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, and she's a public school teacher. She has been most of my life. And I grew up in the lower Valley of El Paso, Texas, living with my grandparents, living with my, some tias, some, living with a tío or, you know, our family, we suffered from, we experienced housing insecurity for the first years of my life. And that still has shaped me to this day, I'm 30 years old and still like think about mm -hmm. being housing insecure. And it's, yeah. I'm fortunately not, I am fortunately not in that situation anymore, but I think about it a lot and how mm -hmm. that changed my brothers, my, my, the lives of me and my brothers. Um, and so I grew up hearing why my grandparents left Mexico, what they didn't like about it, why they specifically came to the US what there's this idea that immigration is a push and a pull. You might be pushed from your homeland for a variety of reasons, and then you're pulled to another land for a variety of reasons. So I learned those politics and how that affected my grandparents' lives um, and learned from a young age. My grandparents only had like second or third grade educations because in Mexico you have to pay, you had to pay for schooling and they did not have money to pay for that. So my grandparents were like, Echale ganas, mijo, you have to go to school, siempre avanzando, avanzando, siempre adelante. You have to be, do well in school. That was drilled into me from a young age. Yep. So I was a nerd. Um, if you, for anyone listening who knows me personally from my, basically all my life from like first grade to now I'm, I've been always a nerd. Um, and that really, that emphasis on education is really what opened my eyes to the world of politics and law and all this stuff that opened my consciousness, reading books and being a nerd. Yes. I mean, we're, we all stand nerds on this podcast. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that is definitely something, um, I wanted to come across in, in the work that we do. But yeah, thanks, Nick, for giving us uh, an overview. And now that I think more, I was like, well, maybe we did have more in common than we don't. Um, for, you know, for me, the um, quintessential, yeah, immigration story started with uh, my parents. My parents are both from Mexico, my mother from Veracruz, which is on the never eat sour wheat, the eastern part of mexico uh with the gulf of mexico this is where um hernan cortez came through and the spanish came um and basically took 
Mexico from the, from the natives. So there's a lot of different bloodlines that came in through Veracruz and you can see it in um, the diversity in the people there. Um, so that's my mom's side of the family. And my father is from Mexico City the biggest city in Mexico. And I think this, the proper name is, um, it's called mega city. Uh, one of the, the one, of, it's one of the largest cities in the world. So just huge, huge cities. Um, my parents both came to Chicago crazily, right? Where, why Chicago, um, of all places. And, uh, I think it had a lot to do with the railroad system and factories and jobs that were available there through the city. And that's what kind of brought in, um, I would think my strands of family there. Uh, so we grew up, um, I grew up in, with, in a household of three girls. I know Nick has now, there's four boys, but we were in a family of three girls uh, and education was, again, something that was highly um, encouraged in our household. There was nothing that was going to keep us from all going to college because both my parents, my mom kind of had a string of jobs as well. She's She had a small business with her and her girlfriends. Um, it's uh, HMS cleaning service, so housemaid cleaning service. And um, me and my sisters used to walk uh, during our summers and pass out, you know, no solicitation signs that you see. It's probably because me and my sisters were knocking on your doors and putting these door knockers on there saying, you need to visit my mom's business. And she did, they did really well, right? Like they, they had, we went to like the nicer neighborhoods in Chicago so that they could, you know, garner business and clients and uh, word of mouth. And that's really how she got a lot of her jobs. And then, and my dad uh, actually got a job as a bus driver. So he worked for the Chicago Transit Authority, CTA, for 30 years and is actually now retired. Um, and it was super fun to come visit him on the buses because I think he, he always had his like go-to routes, um, but he once took the one right by our house, uh, which was Aww. on, yeah, it, it, I think it was on California, uh, which is funny because I live in California now and I had a street California uh, one block over. And I was like, hey, daddy. And my mom was like, don't talk to him. You know, don't let them know that we're family because then they He's would working i know yeah. then they would think i don't know that we went out for free i was like well how much is the bus back then i was like i don't know um so i had two working parents uh growing up and we they made it so that uh, they worked their schedules around us so my dad worked the i don't know if it's the second shift well, i don't know the words, correct time words but he woke up at um two in the morning or i think like one in something like two in the morning every day for the past 30 years so he could be at work from 3 a.m. to, I think, like 12 or 1 p.m. in the afternoon. Um, so that way, he wasn't with us in the morning, but he was out of work by the time we were out of school. So it was his time to, he would always be responsible for us um, right after school, pick us up, you know, make a snack. I don't know. I actually don't remember him making a snack. So <laughs> I remember making ramen. So that's a lie. Um, and then my mom would be, uh, she would take care of us in the morning before school. And so it was kind of like this. And, and I think about it later on in life about that kind of um, timeline. And it's like, yeah, my, my dad was in bed by like 7 p.m. So just just interesting uh, things that I kind of take for granted or I took for granted then. But they had yeah. to make it work as two working parents with I don't you know, my um, grandparents. I remember them when we were really young, but not so much, you know, being a caretaker in the house. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, grew up in Chicago, um, on the South side and it's my memories. I can basically, um, summarize that you could see 
um, bullet casings or, you know, my best friend called and said, Hey, I stepped on a needle and I had to get rushed to emergency room to make sure it wasn't, you know, HIV oh positive. Yeah. Uh, so just things like that. And like, I kind of brush it off now, but it's like, yeah, it was, it was normal to hit the ground when there was shootings or drive-bys. Um, but yeah, it was, it was the nineties and it was a time where, you know, there was a, the drug on war or the drug on war, the war on drugs. And it was definitely alive and well in, in the neighborhood I grew up in. So, um, I would say though it was, though there was violence and stuff like that around, we went to church every Sunday, maybe even twice a week, I think, uh, in little village, La Vita, which is a predominantly Mexican, uh, um, neighborhood in Chicago. And a big part of my upbringing was in an evangelical Christian church. With an ex- with what is like an enclave of other immigrants, my pastor was Puerto Rican. My pastor's wife was Venezuelan. Uh, we had we had we were a missionary evangelical church, so we had missionaries come in from Bolivia and Guatemala. Like, so I grew up with a lot of um, Latin American influences, and I um, I do have to credit church and my extended uh, church family to for that. So. Um, I think that is, and I don't acknowledge it enough, but it is a big part of who I am and where, who helped raise us to. Um, but the shared piece that I think with Nick is that we, I had a strong, um, base of people who are a strong support system of people that wanted to see me, uh, excel in school, which is why education has always been a huge part, huge (laughs) part of, um, my life. Yeah, that's that's really interesting to hear. I think Amanda and I, in putting together this episode, we're like, yeah. there's, you know, Amanda and I bonded, I guess, 10 years ago in college. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a bonding of like, oh, you look like me. Oh, your yeah. accent's familiar. Yeah. I don't remember how we became friends specifically, but it was just like, you're dope. Yeah, let's, let's be friends, <laughs> you know. Um, and so when the, in the course of sharing these things, we're like, there's a lot of stuff that neither of us really talks about a ton. Right. And as good friends with a 10 year friendship, don't know some stuff about each other. Yeah. Um, and as Amanda mentioned earlier, like I think part of the central mission of this podcast is it is education. And when we think about the state of politics in mm. the US today for the last 12 years or so, like there's a lot of division and people hate each other. People are afraid of each other. And what's the way to overcome that? It's getting to know each other. sharing your story and say, you know, this is who I am. Here's my life. Here's what I bring to the table. Here's what formed me. And we humanize ourselves and recognize the humanity in other people to think, oh, these guys call themselves Latinos or Mexicans, but they're not so different from people who aren't Latinos or Mexicans. Uh, So this is our our attempt to to bridge divides like that. Yeah. Um, Let's let's talk about uh, something that's in my mind a lot about is, is a lot of people don't believe that government and politics affects their lives. Yeah. I had a conversation with a family member during the 2016 election. And this person said, you know what? It doesn't even matter who we vote for, who no matter who's president, like my life's not going to change. I'm still going to pay my taxes or pay X amount in gas. And when this family member said it, I was like, no, that's not actually the truth right. because the people in our government who run our countries and our communities, the rules they come up with, 
literally affect every aspect of our lives, our roads, our clean air or not clean air, our dirty water, is our drinking water clean or dirty? Mm-hmm. Seatbelt regulations, are our cars safe? Is yeah. there, our, our public schools, there's so much government does impact us, but we just are not always attuned to notice those things. So I want to talk about, Amanda, what, what were our first interactions looking back? Mm-hmm that you interacted with politics or government or civic participation. You may not have known it at the time, but right. now looking back, what do you think was first your first interaction with government? I was like, I feel like mine to your question of like when you first was this super influential in my life. I was like, I didn't realize it to many, many, many years later. I didn't have the, the, the words or the knowledge to really identify and say, Hmm, this feels like systemic oppression, you know, like it was institutionalized racism. Like, right. It's like, it was much, much later until I was mostly in in, mm, high school. I was scratching the surface in college, but to your question of like when I first, I think really became aware uh, is honestly when we're just talking about this just before this podcast is uh, when we'd go across the border uh, and go to Mexico to visit my relatives um, we would take summers, entire summers, or maybe like a month, because I'm like, how long could my dad taken off, right? I'm sure he must have saved all his PTO to um, to be able to do these uh, family vacations. But we would be in Mexico for an extended period of time, for like four weeks, and um, we would drive. We didn't, you know, there's three of us, so just imagine five, you know, plane tickets back then, which was kind of a luxury. I think, I think one, I want to acknowledge it's still very much a luxury. People don't often fly, but I feel like being, you know, we have multiple degrees and, you know, have traveled because we've gone to school and outside of our state, we've actually had to fly. We've actually gone to fly. Digress. But flying is, I think, a huge privilege still. But back then it was really fancy because you would get like a meal because it was like more than four and a half hours. It was like probably like five hours to get to Mexico City. So what we would do instead is we'd drive. And when you would drive, you know, you're going through, um, I would say, like, hour-long line just to cross the border. And what are they doing? They're checking to see if you're not bringing folks with you, you know. Um, But the fact that the Border Patrol or... I don't even know if we had border patrol before 9-11, like what there was called. And, and Nick, you probably could have more information what the what it looked like back then. But they would, you know, if you were randomly selected to check your um, luggage and stuff, you know, they'd have to pull you over. They'd go through all your stuff. So it was just like really, you know, it, it made you nervous. Even as a young kid, you're like, you just felt anxious knowing that someone's going to go through all your stuff, question you. And the fact that me and my sisters had to introduce ourselves in like the most English way so that they knew we were American children and not Mexican children that were crossing, um, that were crossing and shouldn't have been. So that was, to me, I was like, you know, I just was hyper aware that I am an American citizen and had to 100% represent that at every, um, at any time when it was really important like that. So that for me instilled what it meant to be an American, a U.S. citizen, um, and how that was different than if I were if I were from Mexico and I was trying to come to the United States. So and something about it was bad. Right. It was bad. Um, and you had to always, you know, know that, yeah, no, I am a U.S. citizen. And I have these rights. So I think that's kind of when I first really was like or at least my first impressionable um, piece of why uh, of being a U.S. citizen and government. 
Wow. Yeah. I, when you brought that up, I just, that kind of changed my head a bit because growing up in El Paso, we would go to Juarez to visit family. Mm -hmm. My grandparents had family there and so our extended cousins and all this. So we'd go sometimes to shop, to pick up party supplies if we were throwing a bash or something, or just to lunch or to see, there's like a carnival in Juarez called La Feria that we would sometimes mm -hmm. go to. Um, and El Paso and Juarez are sister cities. They're like, they were founded as one city centuries ago. And then the border was like imposed and they were like, all right, the river runs through this city, let's chop it. Mm -hmm. And so now they're two separate cities, but the culture is still so much that you like drive to Mexico to go. I knew friends in high school who would drive to Mexico on lunch breaks to get cigarettes because they were cheaper in Juarez. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's that, it's that kind of, you cross and you could also like, if you weren't of age to buy cigarettes in, in the U.S., you could, if you knew a place in Juarez, you could. But yeah, crossing the border, that's that's an early interaction with federal government that I didn't think about till Amanda brought it up. But the my first interaction that I think about a lot, um, growing up, as I mentioned, I was one of three children, and my mom was a single mom, mm -hmm. working, you know, random jobs and trying to get her way through school. Um, and we, we didn't have a lot of economic security. And so we benefited from SNAP and food stamps. And I remember, I can't tell you the age because I don't remember specifically how old I was, but I was yeah. less than eight years old. And we would go to the office that would distribute mm -hmm. like the EBT mm -hmm. tickets and stuff. Um, and I remember waiting in line and always asking for a quarter to get runs from the little quarter machine or whatever. Uh, and, and that, yeah, that was my first interaction is government food stamps that help people who don't have economic security get nourishment. Yeah, no, that stuff is super impressionable. And I mean, as I retold it now, I was like, oh my God, I was like, I, you still remember the feelings, you know, or the, I, I don't even know, just like, I don't know, the thing... I can think of like the the agents and you just see the name, right? Their tag and like their uniform. And, you know, when do you really talk to people in uniform? You know, it's only so. Yeah, I think uh, just retelling these pieces, I was like, oh, I can see. I don't know why you can repress memories. <laughs> well, it's scary. Yeah, interacting with with someone in a uniform, a big man in a uniform with a gun. Yeah. On his head. You know, that's that's scary for for lots of people and especially as impressionable children. Um, let's take a break for a bit. Yeah. Uh, and, and we want to share with our listeners that part of our goal and our mission at Beach of Millennial and Beach of Participation is to boost, celebrate and support small businesses owned by women of color. So we're excited to share with you all a neat business to support as you hunt for holiday gifts this year, if you're able. Yeah, as we approach the holidays, we've been on the search for fun and entertaining activities to enjoy with family virtually. We love the idea of cooking recipes together. I mean, we're Mexican. So from the safety of each of our homes, we are excited to try Todo Verde's ingredient bundles to make a delicious meal together. Todo Verde ships their jackfruit carnitas, al pastor, queso bundles, and so much more to your doorstep nationwide. They even have special holiday bundles that include ingredients, a branded apron or tote bag, and a personalized signed copy of their plant-based Mexican cookbook, La Vida Verde. Order today at todoverde.org forward slash shop. 
And I can attest this personally. So this is our first ad that we shared on our Pincha Participation podcast. But it is one that I have actually purchased and have sent to my family members in Nevada and Illinois. And it's super cool. Basically, Nick, you um, get the ingredients for one of the recipes in the cookbook. And they have their apron. So you're basically ready to go. So I essentially have just further pushed my family to try vegan uh, options and to cook more because um, I think like many families, uh, they're either cooking more or you're ordering out more. And uh, I would I want to encourage them during this time, especially because it's holidays and we're 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 enjoying holidays that have lots of food around that they are health conscious in some way. So uh, I actually just bought these and it's a super fun gift and we're excited to try them out um, and do this recipe together over Zoom. And I'm really excited. And I wanted to share it with all of our listeners. That's fun. I'm on the website now and their <laughs> chiles rellenos look so freaking good. Yeah. So does the mole. Um, yeah, we, we also like cooking in our family and I'm interested to try it. So thanks for bringing that to our attention, Amanda. Yeah, I was like, I have queso fresco that I made out of cashews and almonds. And I've yum. had it before and it's super yummy. The crema, cashew cream um, is one of my favorite things in there too. I've had the, I've had the cookbook for a little bit um, and I've tried a number of the recipes. So I'm a big fan. So. Excited to cool. share with all of you. <laughs> um, yeah. So with that, you know, um, we just our quick mid break. You know, we we kind of went through Nick and I our uh, food. I'm sorry, our first origin stories, our first experiences with uh, government or politics or civic engagement. But these kind of become as uh, like we had mentioned earlier. Like we don't really realize we're having these interactions until much much later and so one of the ways we kind of to highlight for everyone listening is hey there are lots of ways that governments the law our policymakers have kind of shaped um our early our early beginnings with with school and beyond so nick do you want to walk us through kind of a few um huge i don't know landmark legislation i guess you would call it yeah some some specific ways that government and law politics made an impact on our lives Mm um i went to a public i went to public school all my life until i was until i went to university Mm -hmm. so public pre-k which was not a big thing at the time but there was a pre-k elementary school middle school and high school all public my mom was a public school teacher like everyone in my family my cousins everybody went to public schools um, and I grew up, as I said, I grew up in the lower Valley of El Paso, Texas, um, which has, uh, some of the lowest, um, median incomes in our nation. Mm. It's, it's not a very wealthy area. And most of the schools in that area are title one schools, which is the classification of public schools receive federal funding to operate. And, receive certain benefits. So I remember when I was applying to college as a 17 year old or 16 year old in high school, I was like, I wanted to cast a wide net and apply to as many schools as possible. And when I put together my list of all the schools that I wanted to apply to, part of that was a college application fee. And for some schools, it was like 20 bucks. For some schools, it was 80 bucks or a hundred dollars. Well, if you're not like, not a lot of people, not a, not everybody has the money to pay for that many college applications. And so fortunately I benefited from a program that um, allowed students at title one schools to have those application fees waived. Mm -hmm. 
So I didn't pay for any college application fees because I was a student at a Title I school. And so that is a policy that state and federal officials have made, policymakers have made to help people at, in, uh, who go to schools in lower income communities to have more access to educational opportunities. Yeah. So if you didn't come from a family that had a bunch of money, you could still apply to a million schools and didn't have to pay, you know, what would end up adding to hundreds of dollars. That made a big difference in my life. And I know the lives of many of my classmates and cousins and f- people in, in, in El Paso. Um, and uh, another one I could think of is Title IX, which is, uh, mm-hmm. well, yeah, t- the Title IX, it, Title IX is a law that was um, part of the Education Amendments Act of 1972. And this Title IX provision was a response to feminists' push to close a loophole in the Civil Rights Act of 1964, um, which allowed schools, Mm. federally funded schools, universities, and colleges to discriminate by sex. So Title IX was a specific response to prohibit discrimination based on sex and gender, and it applied to all educational programs and aspects of a school's operation, including sports. Mm. So before 1972, schools could have massive budgets for boys' sports, men's sports, and no budget for women's sports. Mm -hmm. That's not equality. That's not right. Right. And so this law was put into, was put, it was enacted to, and one of the effects was, or specific effects was, if you receive, if a school receives public funding, it has to fund men's and women's sports equally. And that resulted in sports uh, athletic programs for women all across the country, for women and girls all across the country. Um, and so to the, if, we, if we believe in equality, it would not be equal to continue under that old system, right? And so this law was like, it's broken, we don't like that, We're gonna, we believe it should be changed. And so as a result of having equal funding for women and girls athletic programs mm-hmm. is, things like the US women's national soccer team. Yeah. They women on the national team have been receiving funding for decades as they progress in their careers from young children to young ladies and young women and adults. Um so now they're super competitive and we see like the US mm-hmm. national team women's national team has been so successful for yeah. quite a bit. Yeah. And a lot of countries that have these really robust programs for men's soccer, like Brazil, mm-hmm. don't have as robust funding for women's mm-hmm. sports, women's soccer. Mm-hmm. So there's like not an institutional system built in many countries to allow women and girls to learn sports, to develop athletically and physically. Uh, and so that's, that's a big win from policy, from a boring law, you know, mm-hmm. um, that women have access to international competition and elite levels of playing. And it's, it's not perfect. Right. Right. There's the women's national team is in lawsuit right now for equal pay, because that's still a messed up aspect of our culture. Mm-hmm. But without title nine and the 1972 law, maybe many of our listeners would not have had access to sports uh, athletic programs growing up. Amanda, did you play uh, athletics in your, I sure in your did. education? I was a varsity soccer player. 
This is my freshman year. Woo! Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but are we a good team? You know, in general, that I would be on varsity since my freshman year? That is questionable. But um, <laughs> we, yes, absolutely. My sisters and I all played uh, soccer. I was like, could we be any more Mexican? But yeah, we can. <laughs> we all played <laughs> soccer. Um, and it was because because we played, you know, in, I was like, in the streets. That sounds so, like, I'm trying to be cool. But I really am not. But we, li- we literally played in the streets. And with um, the uh, both boys and girls and at church with the older members, like everyone played. Like it was just like, cool. I don't know, adults. Like my friend's dad, when Gonzalo would always play with us too, you know, it was just um, very good. Yeah, very, yes, very community. So it was just natural for us to play in school. And yeah, I think back to, I absolutely, when we were talking about this, I was like, I absolutely was a beneficiary of this. So um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's it's a great it's a one way that we can think of. I know a lot of my cousins and friends and growing up, female cousins and female friends like they were in sports. They played volleyball and basketball mm-hmm. and soccer, and they did those things. And I and it was such a big. If you played sports growing up, for many of us, it was a very pivotal part of your development. Like you learned yeah. teamwork. You yeah. learned how to share you learned how to gr- use your body as you were yeah. awkward and growing getting used to your changing body mm-hmm. as you got, got older and you learned community just like amanda mm-hmm. shared with us i think and i think it's it's great that 1972 they made this law because at the time like athletic programs for girls were non-existent in many right. places and you know there was superstitions that mm-hmm. like sports and physical competition was not for women that's for men yeah. And it's un- unhealthy or unnatural for girls, which is yep. like bogus, just right. wrong, not right. equal. So, so this is the way governments help push along equality by making these laws. Yeah. And the movements that made that pushed them to make those laws. Absolutely. And, you know, we, OK, you learned a little bit about me. I was like, I played sports. I definitely was in the, <laughs> in the streets getting dirty. Um, that also sounded bad. <laughs> like in the dirt like with (laughs) playing sports in dirt anyways let's go ahead and quickly change this subject i want to learn more about nerdy nick and because i know um nick started his path in like politics and civic uh, engagement uh, i think in a more meaningful way than i did uh so nick yeah tell us about uh your earlier experiences with the process yeah so as i mentioned earlier i grew up housing insecure and and I've always been an anxious person. I've struggled with anxiety all my life. And as a kid, like I didn't know what that was or how to deal with it. But I knew when I was at school, I felt safe. My teachers welcomed me and and I loved reading. Um, and because I, I was a voracious reader, um, I felt in the domain of school, I was doing good and I felt great. Like this is, that was my self-esteem formation as a child. Um, so I always wanted to be at school and I wanted to join every club and be in everything. Um, and there's there's a stereotype in some gay circles of gay men. It's like gay men are always getting involved and being metidos and doing the most. <laughs> like I, guilty, that's me. So I joined student council in like third or fourth grade. Um, and my school, that was around the year 2000, so the presidential election of 2000. Um, my school was a polling place for 
voters and they set up a small, uh, like a mini voting for the students of the school. So when you went with your parents, so your parents could cast a ballot, you could go and, you know, it wasn't official, but then later the school announced our school voted for Al Gore for president. Mm -hmm. And I remember being crushed as a 10 year old when George Bush, when the announcement, when the election was called for George Bush, because I really wanted Al Gore to win for president. And I, in third grade, learned about deforestation in the Amazon. And I mm. cried like a baby thinking about all the toucans who were losing their trees mm, yeah. and just like the raping of the earth mm-hmm. and plowing down of the Amazon. I was devastated by that fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, I don't, I, I want the earth to be alive. And this was part of my young psychology, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was just always involved. And it, as I got into middle school and high school, I joined student government because I saw, you know, when we, when students get together to, to do something, we want to make a difference that we could. Um, and so I, I just wanted to be involved. And because I loved reading, got to learn about history and stuff. And mm-hmm. um, I ended up being, after graduating college, was fortunate enough to get a job in Beto O'Rourke's office when he was in Congress in Washington, D.C., which is how I moved out to the, out here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's how I got involved in all that. I was like, I think you're just like a natural fit for, um, for being engaged in our politics. I think our policies are best formed by, by folks who've literally experienced them firsthand. Right. Um, I think this unique perspective is necessary. Um, especially when you think of like the, now I'm I'm a little bit of a rant, but I'll bring it down. (laughs) But just to say that in Congress, you know, a large majority of our senators, overwhelming majority of our senators and a large majority of our House of Representatives are multimillionaires. They're very affluent people um, that, you know, had have long political careers, et cetera. And perhaps that's how they got into that. Those those dollars, ex- whatnot. Um, but to profit out of, you know, elected office where you you are the people. It doesn't for me doesn't really speak go hand in hand with what the uh, the institution was created for. So having Nick and others really engage and go and work in Congress, I think, is necessary. And we need to make it even more accessible and an easier um, pipeline to do so. Um, it's expensive in that city. If you don't know anyone and you got to re you know relocate, oh, yeah. it's it's. Um, it, it can be there can be so many barriers to this this I would say this formal political process, but other ways of being active, which is part with this podcast. You know, you, we don't ask all of you all to quit your jobs, go work in Congress for twenty five thousand dollars a year because I think that's a starting salary for some of those staffers. Um, how how else can we be active in our everyday life? And federal politics is one piece. State is one piece, local is another piece, and then all the way down to your very the schools that your kids go to, or um, you know, or your coworkers in your work environment. These are all other areas um, that you can participate as well. And I think um, another area um, that is super critical. I mean, you know, we, we talked about Title Nine just now. You know, this comes from actively protesting and actively organizing um and again some people get freaked out by that but you can donate to those organizations to those people that will do it you know that will do it without the money um and and do this in their in their free time that might be, that might be your calling as a real activist or 
I think there's another word that they use now, slacktivist. I'm not quite sure what that is. I saw it. I read it once. I don't know what it means. But I was like, oh, are they like saying people, you know, are pretending to be activists? I was like, not everyone can be activists. Um, and But we can stand in solidarity with them. So um, I think either donating to these organizations, phone banking, there's a lot of ballot measures um, that these movements create. And this is another way of getting laws on the books is that the people vote on it. Um, so I kind of went on a little tangent, but these are all interrelated and I'd love to talk about them more in depth, but these opportunities do exist in the very place that you live today right now. I can assure you. Right. Civic participation isn't just, are you a Senator? And if you're a Senator, that that's the only way that's not, that's not the way it is. Our government was founded based on having an educated citizenry, people Mm -hmm. who were informed and educated about the issues of the day. Mm. And so you can be politically active by reading news sources and Mm -hmm. checking to make sure you're not reading conspiracy craziness and actual facts. You can protest, you can talk with, even just talking with your family about this is how laws affect me. And this is like, Mm -hmm. as a gay man, a lot of what our government does affects the privileges and rights that I have. Can I, is my right to get married under threat? If I talk about this with the fam- people in my life, they might be like, oh, oh, right. that, oh, that, that, I never thought about that. I didn't know about that before. So talking about issues with people is mm-hmm. super important. You can vol- volunteer for a political campaign, you can phone bank, you can run for office for yourself if you, if you see something's not going right. Uh, you can go to your council meetings, join your school board or your PTA, even something, something as micro as that can help you learn how to have an effect and an impact on the lives around you. Yeah. In your own communities. Absolutely. And and I'd like that um, to, to talk about this more and these experience. We started this episode right on our origin stories. Um, it I've actually, you know, wanted to learn more about my parents and how I was like, what was it like when you first came you know, to the United States? And it's prompted a lot of these conversations. I've started to document some of it. Um, and as as we saw politics play out in this really, you know, um, important election uh, this in November, in November, these conversations, especially now during the holidays, are going to come up. Uh, how people voted, how, you know, if they're really excited or if they're really disappointed. Um, there's just a lot of feelings that are attached to this. And um, we I want to do a preface for next week's episode is how do you have these conversations around politics with your own family members? Um, and I think a lot about it is. Yeah, you're gonna have to do a lot of listening, uh, too, because uh, this look this may have looked differently in the '80s uh, and uh, different immigration policies. It could have impacted um, the last, you know, ten years of how trying to overcome from the Great Recession uh, and families being able to finally see above water, right? What that meant for them finally, and um, what different administrations have done to help or make that worse. So I think there's always space to listen to how that could have impacted, um, you and your family, your specific family. And I think just for Nick and I coming from Latino families, we see it play out in the, in the, how polling came out, right. Who was voting for who, for which party, um, shifting in demographics and, all of those, you know, lots and lots to unpack. And I think it'd be a really great opportunity to, to start within your own families um, and, uh, and to do it in a safe and positive way uh, that protects you. I don't want you to go into a super hostile environment either. So we're going to set up kind of some good safe, safeguards for, for you to begin this process. 
Yeah, I think I'm excited for that episode. I know it gives people a lot of anxiety about talking politics with your family. Um, that certainly worries me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I try to th- come up with ways to talk about how laws and governments have impacted our mm-hmm. my life. Yeah. Um, and, and talk about those things and, and share them with the people around you because that makes a difference. That helps. Yeah. Lots of I statements. Don't worry, we got you. We're going to have this helpful guide. And then we'll also have hoping um, we can be joined again by our uh, guest psychotherapist, uh, Lindsay Rojas, who has joined Beach Millennial before um, for a special podcast on what to do when it won't go right. And so... um, Excited for you all to join us in the next few weeks. Um, we took it. We did take a break last week. Uh, I hope you all were able to rest and recharge. And part of that was that we also modeled that ourselves. We wanted to make sure that Nick and I also were like, we need a beat too. And um, I want to encourage you all to uh, to to do that when when you need it as well. So yeah, this was really great, Nick. Thank you for sharing so much. Um, I'm being vulnerable and sharing this with all of our listeners. I think. Um, this is just the beginning again of a long and committed process to learning, unlearning, and just how do we do this together? So, um, yeah. I thank you. Well, I'm, I'm, thanks for allow, giving me space to do that. I am thinking about our origin stories. I figured what, what better physical representation that I, that I could bring to the table than to wear a sweater representing my high school, my public high school in hey. El Paso, Texas. So fancy, Bel Air. <laughs> go red my mom bought this from her fundraiser for the school and i love this sweater so bel air made me who i am i see aye, aye. Aye, and, aye. <laughs> thanks for listening y'all yes thank you all for listening we will talk to y'all next week peace out bye